0: Been dealing with um, Stephen for quite a while now. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. I'm still looking for it. <laughs> Some of these guys are pretty fast, aren't they? They're really fast. All right. I don't think Megan was very nice tonight beating her brother, (laughs) seeing that it's his birthday, that wasn't very nice of her, was it? Literally taking the candy right out of his mouth? That's pretty bad, wasn't it? We'll have to do something about that tonight. All right, Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Let's begin reading there. And again, we're picking up where we left off a week ago. Uh, We're going to learn from Stephen again. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, they gnashed on him with their teeth, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Again, we've been speaking about Stephen and trying to learn as much as we could from him, but... We noted that he was a very bold and very courageous man, and he represents a very powerful picture of what the believer should be. And so we began to consider Stephen. And we began to learn from Stephen. And we noted his qualifications in chapter six, verse three of the book of Acts. We we noted some things about his character and about his person when it says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Of course, Stephen was one of the first deacons, and he had some tremendous qualifications, some tremendous characteristics and attributes. And what we learned from this particular portion was that people are not to be enlisted to serve in a position based upon prestige, prosperity, or personality, but instead, spirituality and character. And we said a position of leadership is to only be awarded after a pattern of holiness and Christ's likeness is evident. And so we note that with the life of Stephen. Number two, we noted his participation. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, the Bible says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. We learned that salvation is not the end of our faith journey, but the very beginning. We have a high calling, we said, in Christ Jesus. And that high calling uh, uh, includes bringing glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so every one of us as believers has that high calling. And every one of us uh, with that high calling comes a real demand for holy conversation. So we're to daily yield our hearts, daily live our lives on behalf of the Master. And so we learn these truths and realize that, we're not just saved to sit, but we 're saved to serve. And number three, we noted his generation in the book of Acts chapter six verses nine through fourteen again, we noted that Stephen lived in a very uh, a generation that was viciously opposed to Christianity, so hated were the Christian sect that the council and the religious leaders had what they called suborned men. They literally enlisted men they went out and whether they hired them or they just coerced them to literally provide false testimony and accusations against this man, Stephen. Now again, we are to understand, I suppose then, that the world will fabricate lies and present them as truth in order to discredit and ultimately disgrace a believer. Nothing has changed in our culture or in our generation from the day of Stephen. Our faith is being maligned by those who also will fabricate falsehoods. Again, they're seeking to discredit our faith. They're seeking to disgrace the very believers. And they'll go to any length in order to sabotage the Lord Jesus Christ in his very efforts to reach a lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we learn, number four, of his proclamation. Again, we've noted that in Acts seven, fifty one through fifty three. And again, we realize that Stephen's preaching was very pointed and very powerful. And he cut to the very heart of those that he spoke to. It ultimately invoked a response. Now again, that response wasn't the desired response. But it was a response nonetheless. And the New Testament preacher is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering as well. When we talk about reproving, we're talking about exposing error. When it says rebuke, it's talking about fixing the blame. Literally saying, okay, this is what... You are doing wrong. And then we talk about exhortation. He's to exhort. He's to encourage toward right. Like Stephen's message, today's preachers are called to proclaim the gospel pointedly and powerfully. Finally, number five, we noted his tribulation. And we said that he... Well, basically, we took some time to go through church history and summarize... Uh, the plight of true believers down through the years. And what we found was that persecution, even martyrdom, was fairly common within the ranks of the faithful, all through history. As Americans, we often are found guilty of, I guess, taking our freedoms for granted. And we're one of the few societies in history that has provided and even permitted freedom of religion. And it's something that we ought to hold in high esteem. And we ought to be very quick to utilize our freedoms for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, tonight, we want to continue to learn from Stephen. And we've noted his qualifications, his participation, generation, proclamation, tribulation. Did you love that? And now we're going to consider his salvation. And so, without further ado, let's have a word of prayer And then we'll continue tonight. Father, we thank you for this time together. And Lord, I thank you for your people. Lord, what a blessing it is to gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, to just exalt you. Whether it be through the song or whether it be through the choir. It might be through these young people that took the time to demonstrate what they'll be doing here in another few weeks. Father, may everything, everything in this service, everything that's transpired and taking place till now and now and even into the future here, glorify and magnify you. Again, Lord, we need you tonight. Thank you for your love and grace. Bless us in this time of service. May our hearts be knit with yours. And Lord, may you be magnified and totally and completely glorified as a result. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We talk about Stephen's salvation. In Acts chapter seven, verse fifty five and fifty six, we we read, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. We'd all like to believe that. Our homecoming is going to bring Christ to His feet. But without trying to burst your bubble too awfully bad, that's not the case at all. That's not what the passage is teaching. It's not trying to tell us that every time a child of God dies, Jesus stands to receive them into the kingdom. The fact that Christ stood for Stephen in no way sets a precedence for all of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. First of all, I want to note the truth we learn. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. In verse 2 of chapter 12, we read, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You could go through the book of Hebrews and on two other occasions you could find that he was seated again. In his message, however, Stephen quoted Isaiah 66, verse 1, which says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. So even Stephen acknowledges the fact that normally Christ is seated, not standing. He's seated in that passage But here in our passage now, in chapter 7, he's standing. The Bible tells us that God is no respecter of persons. So if he stood for Stephen, then he's going to have to stand up for every one of us. Unless there was a reason for it. Now, that may be a wonderful thought, to think that Jesus Christ is going to stand every time a saint dies every time a sinner uh, uh, a saint ends up going on be uh, on to heaven he stands up welcoming them into his arms that may be a nice thought but that's not very practical i mean how many saints die each day every hour or even every minute now i don't know how many exactly but i would imagine it's more than probably you and i would want to have to greet during the day course of a day The truth is that Jesus would never be seated if he stood for every saint that died. Therefore, then every other passage in the whole Bible of him seated would be wrong, and only the one in chapter 7 of Acts would be correct. Therefore, we're to believe or understand that there's something unique about this particular situation or this particular time in history then. Why was Jesus standing? He was standing up because... If the Jew had received the preaching of Stephen concerning the crucified Christ, the risen Messiah, he would have come back and kicked off his kingdom and began his thousand-year reign. Now, sometimes we have a tendency to kind of see everything from our perspective, from a New Testament Christian perspective. But the reality is is that Jesus Christ's ultimate goal is to establish Himself on the throne of David and rule and reign. The greatest day on God's calendar is not His death. Although for you and I, that's a great day in history, but even more so the resurrection. However, in God's calendar, the greatest day on His calendar is when His Son assumes His rightful position on the throne of David, ruling and reigning as he ought to be anyway. So the reality is, is that at this point in history, Stephen is proclaiming a message about a Messiah that has come, died, was buried, and rose again the third day. That he is to be King of King and Lord of Lords. He's to be our Lord, our Savior, our God. And so as he begins to proclaim this message, he's sharing it with the council and with those that represent all of Israel. And So now here we have in place an opportunity for Jesus Christ to return. All of the Old Testament prophecies were in place. The Jews were in their homeland. The Antichrist, Judas, was now in the pit. He'll be back. The right nation was in power, Rome. If they'd only received the message, Daniel's 70th week would have gone into effect. Not one Old Testament verse, not one Old Testament prophecy would have been violated had Christ returned. Again, don't forget, there's no New Testament yet. Sometimes we get a little bit, well, wait a second, I know of a verse, let me show it to you. Well, it wasn't written. All we had was the Old Testament at that point. There were no New Testament prophecies even. They are all Old Testament. From this passage and others, we learned that Israel had gotten three opportunities, or three chances, to accept the Messiah. First of all, John the Baptist came. Crying in the wilderness. What'd they do to John? They killed him. Jesus Christ shows up, offers himself to the people. What'd they do? They killed him. Now, Stephen goes on behalf of all of Israel, preaching and proclaiming the the Messiah. You've killed him. What'd you do with the prince? You destroyed him, you killed him, just like your fathers killed all the prophets. Don't you know who he was? What he accomplished, what he did on your behalf? If only you'll believe him, if only you'll trust him, he'll receive you and accept you now. But of course, what they do to Stephen? They killed him. The last time I checked, three strikes and you're what? Out. And from that point on, God turned His attention toward the Gentiles. You're going to note in the book of Acts that we have a man by the name of Philip. He's experiencing great revival in Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were the the product of the Assyrian captivity. What had transpired was that when the children of Israel went into captivity, they uh, uh, began to intermarry with the Assyrians that were Gentiles. Now, what we have basically then is that we have a race of people that are half Jew, half Gentile. Now God's direction and God's focus was on His people, the Jew, through the Old Testament. And even as you go through the Gospels, we note that He was emphasizing the Jew. Remember the crumbs that fell? He said even the crumbs that fall from the master's table and all that. Remember that lady? He had called her a dog. He said, why would He call her a dog? It wasn't because he just wanted to be mean. He was trying to uh, once again express to us and help us to understand that the Gentile wasn't part of the plan yet. The Jew is who he's truly emphasizing and reaching out to. There came a point, though, when the rejection came that he began to to expand the ministry. And now, all of a sudden, it's moving now not just to the Jew only, but in chapter 8 of Acts, we see it moving to Samaria, and now half Jews and half Gentile are being reached. Remember, Peter was given some keys to a kingdom. He walked and wondered, what are those keys? Well, he was going to open a door of the gospel to a people who had yet to receive it. In chapter 9, before we even get to Peter, we have a man by the name of Saul. Saul is a murderer of Christians. We find him here in chapter 7 holding the garments of those that stoned Stephen. He is ultimately saved on the road to Damascus. He ultimately becomes Paul. The apostle to who? The Gentile. So in chapter 7, here's Saul. He is holding the garments that will ultimately, of those that will ultimately kill Stephen. It's running around, just tumbling in his mind what had transpired and took place. The next scene in chapter 8, we have Philip, who's preaching now to half Jew, half Gentiles. They come to Christ. And he ultimately is sent out to an Ethiopian eunuch who is going to, uh, who is seeking, what in the world does that passage mean in Isaiah? He gets the gospel, where does he take the gospel to? Back to Africa, where he's from. So we have chapter 7, Saul. Chapter 8, we have half Jew, half Gentile being saved. Now, we come to chapter 9, we have the apostle to the Gentile, Saul, being saved and commissioned to go reach the Gentile. But before he does, Peter with his key goes out to Cornelius' house and opens the door of understanding in the gospel to Cornelius and to the Gentile. Cornelius is a Gentile. Full-blown Gentile. He is saved. We know he's saved. How do we know it? The same way the Jew knew it at that point. He spoke in tongues. You say, but I never spoke in tongues. You didn't live back then. We don't need them today. They did. See, the Jew what? Requires a what? Sign. Therefore, when the Jews saw that the Gentiles received the Holy Ghost like they did, they could not dispute the fact that they had received the Holy Ghost. So now the Gentile, the salvation has been opened up to the Gentile. If only... God's people, the Jew, would have heard the message of Stephen and accepted it and received it. We'd already been a millennium. It had been long gone already. The Old Testament prophet never saw the New Testament. As he looked over the history, as the prophecies came, there was a big void It sat below the site. It was as though he was looking over a mountaintop to another mountaintop. He could see where he was and all he could see was the second coming of Jesus Christ. The millennial kingdom. But in between was the church age. He never saw it. Therefore, there were no prophecies that would have hindered Christ from returning. Therefore, he stood that day. Will you accept or receive me or not? I'm ready to step down. And assume my rightful place on the throne. He's no longer standing for every saint. He's seated until the Father says, go and get him. In Acts chapter 7, verse 60, the Bible says, And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord. Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was ushered into the very presence of the Lord. The Christ that he counted so precious, the one he preached and promoted so vigorously, was the very Christ that received him unto himself. Yes, we note, if I can find it here, I can't find it, the truth that we learn. Finally, or should I say second, B, the truth that we live. The truth that we live. If Stephen had any regrets about the sacrifice that he was making, I can guarantee you there wasn't a hardship a trial, or a sacrifice that he regretted now as he faithfully rested in the bosom of his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not a one. Now that he was in the very presence of the Lord and in plain sight of heaven, in plain sight of the angelic host even, he was glad that he had endured such light affliction, which was but for a moment, and worked for him a far more exceeding An eternal weight of glory. See, there were no regrets now. In 1904, William Borden graduated from Chicago High School. As an heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, he was already worth a million dollars. Think about that in 1904 a million dollars. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave him a trip around the world. I got an attaboy. No, I'm joking. I got more. I certainly didn't get a trip around the world, and neither did you, did you? As the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and even Europe, he, he felt this, very, this growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, uh, Borden wrote home to say, quote, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. At the same time, <clears throat> he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. Indeed, Borden held nothing back. During his college years at Yale University, he became a pillar in the Christian community. Uh, One entry in his personal journal that defines the source of his spiritual strength simply said this, Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started a small prayer group that would transform his campus. The little group gave birth to a movement that spread across the campus, and by the end of the first year, 150 freshmen were meeting for weekly Bible study and prayer. By the time he would graduate, or by the time he was a senior there, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. He also strategized with his fellow Christians to make sure that every student on campus would hear the gospel. And he was often seen ministering to the downtrodden in the streets of New Haven. But his real passion was still for missions. Once he uh, uh, narrowed his mission call to the uh, uh, Kansu Kansu people in China. Excuse me, I I was having a hard time with that. Uh, Anyway, he narrowed his mission call to the Kansu people in China. And he never wavered from that. That's all all he could focus on. That's all he ever desired then. So when he graduated from Yale, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. No retreats. After he graduated, of course keeping with that commitment, he turned down several high-paying job offers and he enrolled in seminary instead. And after graduating from seminary, he immediately went to Egypt to learn Arabic because of the intent to work with Muslims in China. While in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within one month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats, he had written these two words, no regrets. William Borden had no regrets and neither should we. How sad would you believe it to be if one were to regret having lived for Jesus. And still believers, from Christ's day till this day, regret not being able to participate in worldly fanfare and fleshly folly. You know, the child of God today can be found longing for the world that they've been delivered from. We say, I can never regret living for God and giving my life for the Master, but still we'll turn around and wish that we could watch a sensual show or attend a worldly event. Isn't that regret? What if a young man or a young lady kept themselves for marriage only to find that they never married? Instead, they had cancer and they never made it. Or like William Borden, had the great expectations and high hopes, only to find that God had a different plan. What if we denied the advances of a coworker, only to find that our spouse had already broken their vows and secretly filed for divorce? Would we regret doing right? Or would we rejoice that we were faithful to the end? See, no matter what your response is, there's one thing I can say without doubt tonight. You will never regret living your life for God in the next life. See, when the shadow of death embraces you, and in that very moment, when you're standing in His majestic presence, you'll have no regrets for living godly, And living good on behalf of Christ. On this side, we may be tempted to regret a wholly separated lifestyle. If we're not careful, we can become unappreciative of what Christ has done and somehow feel we're missing out on the most or best things. That the cost is too great, the price too high... But when you're standing in his majestic presence, you won't ever even imagine that. It won't even cross your mind at that point. We noted the truth we learn and the truth we live. And now I want to just share the truth we love. In Psalm chapter 27 verse 1, it says, a Psalm of David The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Jesus was Stephen's light and salvation, wasn't he? I mean, how can we not see that? Here he is being stoned to death, but yet he looks up and sees Christ standing. His focus, obviously, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he was his light and his salvation, he could endure the hardships of his martyrdom simply because his eyes were fixed on the savior the savior that he loved and adored so greatly he could endure it and be victorious in John 14:6 the bible says Jesus said unto him i am the way the truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me today you and i as believers we only have one hope It's the truth, isn't it? And the truth is none other than Jesus Himself. See, He alone is our light. He alone is our salvation. There can be no mistaking it. Life lived in our own strength and in our own ability will yield only futility and frustration. I believe there will be seasons of success, or rather the appearance of success, even if we live it in the flesh. But that will be short-lived. For truly, to succeed without Christ is the greatest of all failures. See, the nature of our business, your business and mine as believers, is eternal. And nothing eternal is ever gained when operating in the flesh. Nothing. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, it says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. See, the nature of our business is eternal, and nothing eternal can be gained by the flesh. Not only is the Lord our light and salvation, but He is our strength also. In Psalm 27, 1 again, we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The very Christ that saved our soul is also the one that supplies our very strength. The edict had been engineered, and now it was being enforced. If one did not bow and worship the image when the music played he or she would be cast into a fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, verse 15 through 17, it says, Now if ye be ready that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, heart, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. The Hebrew children were not like, or should I say not unlike, young men today, were they? I mean, they too had dreams. And... They had visions of ultimately finding the love of their life and sharing a fruitful relationship together and having children and a family. They're no different than young men today. They too saw themselves as those with a whole life ahead of them. But without warning, this edict was decreed. And suddenly they were confronted with a dilemma that, let's be honest now, would probably crush most of us without doubt. They were thrust into the teeth of a diabolical plan to literally abolish any reference of faith in that land. But yet they were not careful to answer the king. Their lives weighing in the balance, they're still strong, unwavering, resolute. It wasn't simply a lifestyle. And it wasn't just a long-standing principle that they stood there faithful for. They remained faithful for a person. And it would ultimately be the person that would join them in that fiery furnace. I fear that sometimes we want God to join us. Before we've joined Him. Before we take that stand, we expect God to already reveal the deliverance. But there's so many questions I have about the future, Lord. Trust me. Rely on me. Depend on me. I would gladly submit myself and, and commit myself to, to the call of God in my life or to that particular bus route or that Sunday school class, but I just don't know if I can do it. I, I, I don't know. There's too many obstacles. There's too much going on. Did God speak to you or didn't He? I mean, how much money do we need in the bank to answer the call of the ministry? I mean, are, are, is there a dollar amount that would ultimately free us up? Is there? I, I, I just met a man the other day. He was two years away from retirement. Two years away from retirement, and he went into the ministry and threw, gave it all up. Two years. He was a police officer. He gave it up. Said I. I was. He said I was afraid to go to work. Because I knew God had called me. He goes, I wasn't sure if he'd just take me home if I didn't obey him. Where's the fear of the Lord like that in our lives? He said, I thought it was a lot safer letting God worry about my finances than me worrying about my life. I like it. That would seem totally ludicrous to most totally out of line, unrealistic, even irresponsible, sadly enough, to most Christians even. What about his wife? And what about his kids? What about his future? What about his God? Is his God any less powerful than he was in Abraham's day? Any less powerful than he was when he led the children of Israel around Jericho seven times? That certainly wasn't some military strategy that had been used before. I think too often we're so quick to interject our own philosophies, our own understanding and wisdom. See, people say there's a fine line between faith and stupidity. I don't believe there is. It's either faith or stupidity. And sadly enough, sometimes people without faith want to believe everything's stupidity. Oh, it's a fine line you're walking there. You know, going into the ministry with only two years left, that's a fine line between faith and stupidity. No, that would have been stupidity not to obey God. Stephen... The Hebrew children believed in a person. And that love for that person, God, provided them with a supernatural strength and courage that was demanded in order to overcome. See, our salvation today is a person, not an event. Well, I got saved. Really? Really? Oh yeah, see, I remember it. I had this experience. I'm getting nervous. I'm not opposed to experiences. Don't misunderstand me. I I think it's important. I think we ought to be moved by the things of God. I think emotion is a wonderful thing and God uses it. It's a tool that He uses. He wouldn't have given it to us if He didn't want it to be used for His glory. But hold on a second. My salvation is not an experience. Is not just simply uh, uh, an event in my life. It's a person. Jesus Christ is my salvation. There is no salvation without Him. And our strength, according to the psalmist, once again, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. See, our, our strength is a person and not an attribute. Look how strong I am. I pull my stuff up by my own bootstraps. Oh, it's an attribute. No, according to the Word of God, it's a person, Jesus Christ. You wonder why we're so powerless today? Because it is merely our power we're functioning in. Because we haven't appropriated the power of the Lord, because we don't give Him the credit for it all. It is Him that's our salvation. It is Him that is our strength. That's how the psalmist says, whom shall I be afraid of then? Who in the world can bother me? That giant out there? The one that's standing in the valley? Cursing my God? Am I to be fearful of Him and afraid of Him? Not with God is my strength. For it will not be my strength that will bring Him to defeat. It will be my God's power and strength. Don't you get weary of faithlessness? Not only in others' lives, but especially in your own. Doesn't it bother you when you find yourself faithless? You say, I don't ever find myself that way. Then you are prideful and arrogant then. How in the world can we be so self-consumed to somehow believe that we are so spiritually giant? Don't you get weary? Aren't you just grieved at times by your faithlessness. I know I am. I wonder what kind of faith I'd have if I were standing in the middle of a group of people holding rocks prepared to stone me to death. I wonder if I could see my Savior. Would He be that close to me? That real to me? Would my communion and fellowship be so sweet that even in the midst of that chaos and confusion, it'd be His face I'd see? He is our salvation and our strength also. Don't be fooled into substituting work for worship or activity for adoration. You need to give yourself to Him and so do I. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest into your souls. Learn of me, he says. Tonight, we need to learn from Stephen. As we learn from Stephen, we can't help but note that Stephen had Christ in his sights. That made all the difference, didn't it? He was his salvation and he was his strength. God help us not to allow anyone or anything, including ourselves, be our strength and our salvation tonight. May we always recognize him and only him being those things. Father, we thank you for all you've done for us. Again, thank you, Father, for just the simplicity of this this passage. Yet, Lord, the depth of its teachings. Lord, may we truly long to draw nigh to you, closer to you. Father, the salvation that Stephen experienced is the very salvation we possess. And the very strength that he had was the same, found in the same person that you that that we now possess, and that's you, Lord Jesus. Help us, Father, to ever draw nigh to Thee, to make communion with Thee our priority. Father, help us, we pray, and meet our needs tonight. We well, thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. As all heads are bowed and eyes are closed, as the pianist plays, won't you come? Maybe you say tonight, I don't even know if for sure if I died I'd go to heaven. I don't even have that one settled. Man, what? That one you need to get handled and you need to handle it now. Don't delay. Don't wait. Immediately respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept Him. Receive Him as your own.